Greetings, Detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company in our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. Welcome to Calm Mystery. This installment, The Paradoxes of Mr. Pond, by G.K. Chesterton, Chapter 1, The Three Horsemen of Apocalypse. The curious and sometimes creepy effect which Mr. Pond produced upon me, despite his commonplace courtesy and dapper decorum, was possibly connected with some memories of childhood and the vague verbal association of his name. He was a government official who was an old friend of my father, and I fancy my infantile imagination had somehow mixed up the name of Mr. Pond with the pond in the garden. When one came to think of it, he was curiously like the pond in the garden. He was so quiet at all normal times, so neat in shape and so shiny, so to speak, in his ordinary reflections of earth and sky in the common daylight. And yet I knew, 
there were some queer things in the pond in the garden. Once in a hundred times, on one or two days during the whole year, the pond would look oddly different, or there would come a flitting shadow or flash in its flat serenity, and a fish or a frog or some more grotesque creature would show itself to the sky. And I knew there were monsters in Mr. Pond also. Monsters in his mind which rose only for a moment to the surface and sank again. They took the form of monstrous remarks, in the middle of all his mild and rational remarks. Some people thought he had suddenly gone mad in the midst of his sanest conversation, but even they had to admit that he must have suddenly gone sane again. Perhaps again this foolish fantasy was fixed in the youthful mind because at certain moments Mr. Pond looked rather like a fish himself. His manners were not only quite polite, but quite conventional. His very gestures were conventional, with the exception of one occasional trick of plucking at his pointed beard, which seemed to come on him chiefly when he was at last forced to be serious about one of his strange and random statements. At such moments he would stare owlishly in front of him and pull his beard, which had a comic effect of pulling his mouth open as if it were the mouth of a puppet with hairs for wires. This odd occasional opening and shutting of his mouth, without speech, had quite a startling similarity to the slow gaping and gulping of a fish. But it never lasted for more than a few seconds, during which, I suppose, he swallowed the unwelcome proposal of explaining what on earth he meant. He was talking quite quietly one day to Sir Hubert Wotton, the well-known diplomatist. They were seated under gaily striped tents or giant parasols in our own garden, and gazing toward the pond which I had perversely associated with him. They happened to be talking about a part of the world that both of them knew well, and very few people in Western Europe at all the vast flats fading into fens and swamps that stretch across Pomerania and Poland and Russia and the rest. Right away, for all I know, into the Siberian deserts. And Mr. Pond recalled that, across a region where the swamps are deepest and intersected by pools and sluggish rivers, there runs a single road raised on a high causeway with steep and sloping sides. A straight path, safe enough for the ordinary pedestrian, but barely broad enough for two horsemen to ride abreast. That is the beginning of the story. It concerned a time not very long ago, but a time in which horsemen were still used much more than they are at present, though already rather less as fighters than as couriers. Suffice it to say that it was in one of the many wars that have laid waste that part of the world, in so far as it is possible to lay waste such a wilderness. Inevitably, it involved the pressure of the Prussian system on the nation of the Poles, but beyond that it is not necessary to expound the politics of the matter or discuss its rights and wrongs here. Let us merely say, more lightly, that Mr. Pond amused the company with a riddle. 
"'I expect you remember hearing,' said Pond, "'of all the excitement there was about Paul Petrowski, "'the poet from Krakow, "'who did two things rather dangerous in those days, "'moving from Krakow and going to live in Poznan, "'and trying to combine being a poet with being a patriot. "'The town he was living in was held at the moment by the Prussians. "'It was situated exactly at the eastern end of the Long Causeway.' The Prussian command, having naturally taken care to hold the bridgehead of such a solitary bridge across such a sea of swamps, but their base for that particular operation was at the western end of the causeway. The celebrated Marshal von Grock was in general command, and, as it happened, his own old regiment, which was still his favourite regiment, the White Hussars, was posted nearest to the beginning of the great embanked road. Of course, Everything was spick and span, down to every detail of the wonderful white uniforms, with the flame-coloured baldricks slung across them. For this was just before the universal use of colours like mud and clay for all the uniforms in the world. I don't blame them for that. Sometimes I feel the old epoch of heraldry was a finer thing than all that epoch of imitative colouring that came in with natural history and the warship of chameleons and beetles. Anyhow, this crack regiment of cavalry in the Prussian service still wore its own uniform, and, as you will see, that was another element in the fiasco. But it wasn't only the uniforms, it was the uniformity. The whole thing went wrong because the discipline was too good. Grock's soldiers obeyed him too well, so he simply couldn't do a thing he wanted. "'I suppose that's a paradox,' said Walton, heaving a sigh. "'Of course, it's very clever and all that, but really it's all nonsense, isn't it? Oh, I know people say in a general way that there's too much discipline in the German army, but you can't have too much discipline in an army.' "'But I don't say it in a general way,' said Pond plaintively. I say it in a particular way, about this particular case. Grock failed because his soldiers obeyed him. Of course, if one of his soldiers had obeyed him, it wouldn't have been so bad. But when two of his soldiers obeyed him, why, really the poor old devil had no chance. Walton laughed in a guttural fashion. I'm glad to hear your new military theory. You'd allow one soldier in a regiment to obey orders, but two soldiers obeying orders strikes you as carrying Prussian discipline a bit too far. I haven't got any military theory. I'm talking about a military fact, replied Mr. Pond placidly. It is a military fact that Grock failed because two of his soldiers obeyed him. It is a military fact that he might have succeeded if one of them had disobeyed him. You can make up what theories you like about it afterwards. I don't go in much for theories myself, said Wotton rather stiffly, as if he had been touched by a trivial insult. At this moment could be seen striding across the sun-checkered lawn the large and swaggering figure of Captain Gehagen, the highly incongruous friend and admirer of little Mr. Pond, he had a flaming flower in his buttonhole and a grey top hat slightly slanted upon his ginger-haired head. 
and he walked with a swagger that seemed to come out of an older period of dandies and duelists, though he himself was comparatively young. So long as his tall, broad-shouldered figure was merely framed against the sunlight, he looked like the embodiment of all arrogance. When he came and sat down, with the sun on his face, there was a sudden contradiction of all this in his very soft brown eyes, which looked sad and even a little anxious. Mr. Pond, interrupting his monologue, was also in a twitter of apologies. "'I'm afraid I'm talking too much, as usual. The truth is I was talking about that poet Petrowski, who was nearly executed in Poznan quite a long time ago.' The military authorities on the spot hesitated and were going to let him go, unless they had direct orders from Marshal von Grock or higher. But Marshal von Grock was quite determined on the poet's death, and sent orders for his execution that very evening. A reprieve was sent afterwards to save him, but as the man carrying the reprieve died on the way, the prisoner was released after all. But is, repeated Watton mechanically. "'The man carrying the reprieve,' added Gehagen, somewhat sarcastically. "'Died on the way,' muttered Watton. "'Why, then, of course the prisoner was released,' observed Gehagen in a loud and cheerful voice. "'All as clear as clear can be. Tell us another of those stories, Grandpapa.' "'It's a perfectly true story,' protested Pond and it happened exactly as I say. It isn't any paradox or anything like that. Only, of course, you have to know the story to see how simple it is. Yes, agreed Gehagen. I think I should have to know the story before realizing how simple it is. Better tell us the story and have done with it, said Wotton shortly. Paul Petrowski was one of those utterly unpractical men who are of prodigious importance in practical politics. His power lay in the fact that he was a national poet, but an international singer. That is, he happened to have a very fine and powerful voice, with which he sang his own patriotic songs in half the concert halls of the world. At home, of course, he was a torch and trumpet of revolutionary hopes, especially then, in the sort of international crisis in which practical politicians disappear, and their place is taken by men either more or less practical than themselves. For the true idealist and the real realist have at least the love of action in common, and the practical politician thrives by offering practical objections to any action. What the idealist does may be unworkable, and what the man of action does may be unscrupulous, but in neither trade can a man win a reputation by doing nothing. It is odd that these two extreme types stood at the two extreme ends of that one ridge and road among the marshes, the Polish poet a prisoner in the town at one end, the Prussian soldier a commander in the camp at the other for Marshal von Grock was a true Prussian, not only entirely practical, but entirely prosaic. He had never read a line of poetry himself, but he was no fool. He had the sense of reality which belongs to soldiers, and it prevented him from falling into the asinine error of the practical politician. 
He did not scoff at visions. He only hated them. He knew that a poet or a prophet could be as dangerous as an army. And he was resolved that the poet should die. It was his one compliment to poetry, and it was sincere. He was at the moment sitting at a table in his tent. The spiked helmet that he always wore in public was lying in front of him, and his massive head looked quite bald, though it was only closely shaven. His whole face was also shaven, and he had no covering but a pair of very strong spectacles, which alone gave an enigmatic look to his heavy and sagging visage. He turned to a lieutenant standing by, a German of the pale-haired and rather pudding-faced variety, whose blue saucer eyes were staring vacantly. "'Lieutenant von Hochhammer,' he said, "'did you say His Highness would reach the camp tonight?' "'7.45, Marshal,' replied the lieutenant, who seemed rather reluctant to speak at all, like a large animal learning a new trick of talking. "'Since it is just time,' said Grock, "'to send you with that order for execution before he arrives,' We must serve his highness in every way, but especially in saving him needless trouble. He will be occupied enough reviewing the troops, sees that everything is placed at his highness's disposal. He will be leaving again for the next outpost in an hour. The large lieutenant seemed partially to come to life and made a shadowy salute. Of course, Marshal, we must all obey his highness. I said we must all "'Serve his highness,' said the marshal. "'With a sharper movement than usual, "'he unhooked his heavy spectacles "'and wrapped them down upon the table. "'If the pale blue eyes of the lieutenant "'could have seen anything of the sort, "'or if they could have opened any wider, "'even if they had, "'they might as well have been opened wide enough "'at the transformation made by the gesture. "'It was like the removal of an iron mask.' An instant before, Marshal von Grock had looked uncommonly like a rhinoceros, with his heavy folds of leathery cheek and jaw. Now he was a new kind of monster, a rhinoceros with the eyes of an eagle. The bleak blaze of his old eyes would have told almost anybody that he had something within that was not merely heavy, at least that there was a part of him made of steel and not only of iron, for all men live by a spirit, though it were an evil spirit, or one so strange to the commonality of Christian men that they hardly know whether it be good or evil. I said we must all serve his highness, repeated Grock. I will speak more plainly, and say we must all save his highness. Is it not enough for our kings that they should be our gods? Is it not enough for them to be served and saved? It is we who must do the serving and saving. Marshal von Grock seldom talked, or even thought, as more theoretical people would count thinking, and it will generally be found that men of his type, when they do happen to think aloud, very much prefer to talk to the dog. They have even a certain patronizing relish in using long words and elaborate arguments before the dog. It would be unjust to compare Lieutenant von Hochheimer to a dog. It would be unjust to the dog, who was a much more sensitive and vigilant creature. 
it would be truer to say that Grock, in one of his rare moments of reflection, had the comfort and safety of feeling that he was reflecting aloud in the presence of a cow or a cabbage. Again and again, in the history of our royal house, the servant has saved the master, went on Grock, and often got little but kicks for it, from the outer world at least, which always whined sentimentalism against the successful and the strong. But at least we were successful and we were strong. They cursed Bismarck for deceiving even his own master over the Ems telegram. But it made that master the master of the world. Paris was taken, Austria dethroned, and we were safe. Tonight, Paul Petrovsky will be dead, and we shall again be safe. That is why I am sending you with his death warrant at once. You understand that you are bearing the order for Petrovsky's instant execution, and that you must remain to see it obeyed. The inarticulate Hockheimer saluted. He could understand that all right, and he had some qualities of a dog after all. He was as brave as a bulldog, and he could be faithful to the death. You must mount and ride at once, went on Grock, and see that nothing delays or thwarts you. I know for a fact that fool Arnheim is going to release Petrovsky tonight if no message comes. Make all speed. And the lieutenant again saluted and went out into the night. Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. To solve your own case with us, Visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM, C-A-L-M, for $20 off your own murder mystery party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night. That's MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, code calm.